Good evening, everyone. Last week, I promised we were going to talk about how psychiatrists began to understand more about the brain. To start, though, not very much was understood about the brain, and for pretty good reason. The brain is, firstly, incredibly complex, and not only that, but it's constantly locked away in this pesky old skull. Until very recently, the only way to study the brain, or even just look at it live, was to either cut through a living person's skull, not very nice, or to wait until after death for an autopsy, which is not quite the same. As you can imagine, this makes it really hard to study the brain, which is already the most complex thing in the body to understand at all. Earlier attempts in human history were pretty rough. You may have heard of phrenology, which is a pseudoscience that claims you can tell things about a person's brain by studying their skull shape. I guess since that was the closest thing we could get to, it had to do at least to start. Turns out, though, brain function and skull shape have pretty much no relationship. By the mid-20th century, phrenology was long dead, but a new small cohort of psychiatrists would begin seeking out chemical indicators of brain dysfunction, especially looking in bodily fluids. Blood, cerebral spinal fluid, and urine would all be searched for years. In 1968, psychiatrists at the University of California at San Francisco were studying certain chemical tests that would change color in response to different chemicals. They found that urine from schizophrenic patients produced a pink or a mauve spot of color on their test strip. Perhaps this was what they were seeking, a test that could be used to detect mental illness through bodily fluids. However, when other scientists tried to replicate these findings, they found that the colors appearing in the test strips were just caused by either the consumption of psychiatric drugs or of caffeine, and unfortunately were not any sort of useful marker for mental illness. Through the 70s, no research successfully identified any chemical signals of mental illness in any bodily fluid, and I'm not sure that even to this day we've identified anything of the sort in urine. Perhaps, though, there was another way. What if we could actually examine the brain, but, you know, skip that whole cutting through the skull part? The invention of x-rays in the late 1900s at first seemed promising, but scientists quickly figured out that when you took x-rays of the head, all you can really see is the skull and an outline of the brain. X-rays, unfortunately, did not help with anything but fractures, injuries, or brain tumors, and therefore not very much in the way of mental illness. And so psychiatrists had to keep waiting, all the way until the 1970s, when the Beatles helped pave the way for the psychiatrists to make a breakthrough. And I realize this is a podcast, so it might not be clear, but I mean the Beatles, as in the extremely popular rock band of the era, and not an animal. The Beatles worked with a company called EMI, short for Electrical and Musical Industries. Now, the musical part was clearly working out very well, but after raking in tons of cash from the success of the Beatles, EMI decided to try out some new projects in their electronics division. An engineer at the firm named Godfrey Hunsfield was doing research on electronics, including a project to try to use x-rays at multiple angles, in order to produce a fully three-dimensional image of an object instead of just that boring old two-dimensional stuff. They ultimately succeeded, and were able to produce far more detailed images of the body than had ever been possible before. This tech came to be known as Computed Axial Tomography, or CAT scan for short, which is probably what you've heard it called by. But were it not for the Beatles, this technology might not have come along for quite some time. Or, well, maybe it still would have, because I found other sources that dispute that claim. 
The research project that developed the CAT scan also received funding from the British Department of Health and Social Security. In fact, probably a lot more funding from the government than EMI. But it does make for a nice story, and I do still want to highlight the connection even if it does get overblown from time to time. It wasn't long before psychiatrists realized the potential. Just a few years later, in 1976, Eve Johnstone released the first study of mental illness using CAT scans, and found schizophrenic patients' brains had larger-than-normal lateral ventricles, a part of the brain that helps to clean the brain. There were tons of studies using CAT scans, and Hounsfield actually went on to receive the 1979 Nobel Prize for Medicine for his role in discovering CAT scans. Within just years, though, psychiatrists were handed yet another incredible tool for studying the brain, known as magnetic resonance imaging, or the MRI. Starting in the 1970s, three scientists in three separate instances were using magnetic resonance in experiments, the technology that would become MRIs. Raymond Damadian, Paul Lauderbur, and Peter Mansfield were all studying different uses of the technology, and eventually two of them started companies to build full-body devices that could use this to image, and the modern MRI was born. MRI was first used to image the brain in 1981, and had even more detail than CAT scans did, and also didn't expose patients to dangerous radiation, which is always a plus. Lauderbur and Mansfield would eventually split a Nobel Prize in 2003 for their discoveries involving magnetic resonance imaging. And if CAT scans and MRIs weren't enough, there was still one more imaging breakthrough that would come around this time. Finally, we have positron emission tomography, or the PET scan, which also became widely available in the 1980s. I won't get into the story of the PET scan too much because it's pretty complicated, but I'm pretty sure I'll end up talking about it at some point in this podcast, so maybe you'll hear more about it then. PET scans, while not as good at revealing the structure of the brain, could show you in detail what parts of the brain were currently in use, though, which is also very, very interesting if you're trying to study mental illness. By combining the newly found powers of the CAT, MRI, and PET scans, which sounds kind of like a themed team of heroes, researchers could now examine the brain of a living person in detail, down to the millimeter, and identify brain activity down to the millisecond. Since then, thousands of studies have been undertaken to study the brain in those suffering from mental illness. Schizophrenia, depression, and bipolar disorder have all since been associated with unusual structures or activity in certain brain parts. These studies have led to discoveries revealing the role of certain chemicals in the brain in mental illness, which has helped to explain how some of the drugs we've been talking about all this season actually work. We already knew that they worked, but it was not until decades later that there was any understanding of why, and imaging helped make a big difference in getting there. But imaging alone was not enough to revolutionize psychiatry. It required, in addition, actual experimentation on actual nerves and brains. Which is why next week we'll talk about the psychiatrist, Eric Kandel. As always, thanks for listening, and hopefully you're enjoying what you're hearing. If so, please leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, or just tell a friend about us. Thank you also to Jojo Tang, my editor, Angie Lee, our cover artist, and Muse Open for this outro music.